Hello and welcome to Send Circling uh, with him, David Hirsch. And her, Charlotte Henry. Thank you very much for joining us once again. Uh, we're really thrilled, actually, the people listening, people sharing, people getting in touch with us over social media about the show. So do keep sharing the, the, the older episodes and you can tweet me at, at Charlotte A. Henry. And me, uh, just put my name into the search machine, David Hirsch. And, and you can send us que- we like questions, we like comments, we like feedback, we like to be told how fabulous we are, you know, all these things. <laughs> and welcome to Centre Circling. Exactly. So, and we'll be, because there's a bit of a community discussion going on around the podcast now, which we're really excited about, we'll be uh, putting together a little Facebook page as well where you can also post us questions, so keep an eye out for that. Brilliant. But there's, again, a lot to discuss this week. So in my house, the the whole teenagers, children, grown-ups sit around on a Sunday morning watching Ma. Uh-huh, yes. Is that old fogey thing? I have to be honest with you. I, well, I was away this weekend, but I did flick it on to through the midst of a hangover. This Then Nigel Farage appeared. That didn't help my hangover. So Nigel Farage did a big interview. He did. He was the set piece this week. He is the set piece this week. Nigel yes. Farage has put himself at the very centre yeah. of British politics in Again. an astonishing way. I, about four years ago, I was at the, some contemporary dance event and there was this kind of whisper of Nigel Farage, Nigel Farage. And Sounds it was all a terrifying. bit weird and we weren't even sure that it was really him. And I was a bit cross. Yeah, at the end of the music, I turned around to the people next to us in the Royal Opera House and I said, were they saying Nigel Farage or not? And they were. And I was a bit cross at the time because I thought, he's this kind of awful, horrible, marginal figure. And turns out they were right, that he moved right into the centre of British politics. Mm. Uh, he certainly has. And for that reason, as a leader now of the Brexit party, he was given a big set-piece interview with Andrew Marr, which... I thought was an extraordinary example of Trumpian post-truth thinking interview and interview technique. He lambasted the BBC. You know, Andrew Marr didn't ask him the questions that he wanted, so the BBC had no interest in democracy. The BBC doesn't care about all. This was very Donald Trump. Yeah. You weren't even at my rally. There were so many people there. You know, it was all like that. I I found it quite extraordinary. Well, it is extraordinary. And Farage is and Trump are awful in a whole number of ways. But the thing that worries (laughs) me... Say what you think, David. Say what you think. I will say what I think. One of the things that worries me, though, is that Trump was really, really good at what he does. Like, 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 sorry, Farage, like Trump... Mm -hmm. They're really good at what they do. They're coherent, they're passionate, they have a clear message and they come out with it. With, with and, and I thought in that sense, Farage performed really, really well. And I thought even in, in a sense, when Andrew Marr started trying to talk to him about other things, about the NHS, about things that he said in the past, in the past, and Farage just said, this is about Brexit. And, and about democracy. That's right. It's about democracy. Because <laughs> democracy is a one-time thing, and if you win, you win. Did you know that, David? Well, I think that's one of the things we need to do today, is nail the central uh, claim that this is all about democracy, that 
So the central claim is very simple. Now let, let's be clear. You strongly advocate for a second referendum. Um, I don't strongly advocate for a referendum. I think that it might be the case that a second referendum is the only way out of this mess, although I think it's really difficult and I don't. it's certainly not a certain way out of this mess. No. Uh, I come from a slightly different perspective, not wholly different, but slightly, in that I initially was like, OK, we lost, we have to stuck, suck it up, it's not going to be that bad. I think the last two and a half, three years have proved quite how bad it can be and we've not even done Brexit yet. And so I've swung much more behind the idea of having a second referendum. Well, look, let's grasp the nettle, right? Because and, th- and this is what Farage objects to, doesn't he? He says that is not democratic. So it, it, it's a really clear and easy position. They say the Parliament asked for a referendum so that the British people could make a decision, the British people made a decision, and then <clears throat> uh, both the Labour Party and the Tory Party stood in the election on a manifesto of implementing the decision and the decision wasn't implemented. And so Farage, he doesn't pull punches. He says that the democratic process has been betrayed. He says that it's... He used the word betrayed a lot in the interview. He says it's like a coup d'etat. I don't think he used those words in the interview. But that's the argument. and, And so they create this notion of the political class, of a kind of one thing which is betraying the will of the people. Mm. So let's begin with the referendum itself. Oh, God. Okay, we're going back. Here we go. Well, yeah. Look, I saw a brilliant film, actually, the other day, right? It was about Chile in 1989. Here we go. Put up a, put up a pew, yeah. Story time with David. I think it was Chile in 1988, 1989. So the Pinochet regime was in big trouble. It was the very close of the Cold War. They were losing their support. David, it's taken you six minutes and we've got to Pinochet. <laughs> and Pinochet decided to try and get out of this mess by calling a referendum. And he said, yes or no, should I carry on and and embody the will of the Chilean people, yes or no? And the movie is great. The movie is called No, and it's, it's, for various reasons, a really nice little movie because it's about how political campaigning worked and it's about the tension between this kind of marketing guy who made Coke commercials Mm. on the one hand and he produces fantastic... Um, jingle for the for the um, no campaign, right? And, and by the time you finish the movie, you're singing the jingle. But he was in this kind of battle with all these old communists who said, "No, we must do it this way and this way, and represent the people and the disappeared." And all he wanted to do was his jingle. But anyway, the story was that in the end, the Chilean people voted no. They didn't give Pinochet his yes, and it was Clem Attlee famously quoted by Margaret Thatcher, who said that the referendum is the device of dictators. Why? Well, a number of reasons. One is that what, what it's done in this country is it's set in stone one moment in the summer of 2016, and it's made it um, perfect and unassailable. Elections don't do that. Elections give the government a majority, but they give representation to the minority, and democracy is an ongoing process, an ongoing culture. Now, some people would, would then come back and argue, and I see some merit in this argument, uh, some people would come back and argue that in the 2017 general election, a huge, the vast, vast majority of voters voted for parties 
uh, that had implementing Brexit in their referendum. Yeah, you see, I don't agree with that, actually. Okay. I, th I think the opposite. I think Theresa but May went to the country and she said, give me a decent majority to implement strong and stable Brexit. And the country laughed at her and said no. Okay, but they also voted for the Labour Party that had implementing a form of Brexit in their manifest as well. Yeah, but I think, um, you know, d democracy is complicated at the moment and parliamentary representation is complicated at the moment and nobody thought, I don't think anybody thought that the 2017 election result was a mandate for Brexit. What it did... See, I, that I'm not sure about and I think if you're Nigel Farage, you can use it as that. Well, you can, but what it actually did was to elect a parliament. Yes. And parliament's job was to sit down and pick up the mess of the referendum. The referendum was unimplementable. Parliament picked it up. It said, we really want to implement it. We've promised to implement it. Let's implement it. And Parliament has been wrestling with it for three years, actually in quite a serious way. The Constitution is not simply referendum, but the Constitution is about checks and balances. It's about debate. It's about ongoing process. And there has been this ongoing you know, struggle to implement the referendum. I think most MPs wanted, wanted or want to implement the result of the referendum again, in some I'm, way. Again, no, if I, while I am not particularly comfortable playing the Nigel Farage role, he would say this is a Remainer parliament, a Remainer government who don't want to implement Brexit. Yeah, and <laughs> whenever we have these conversations, I always try... And at least, this is not a particularly me being particularly grand or fantastic, but I do at least try to see things from a, perhaps a different perspective or see what opponents of the arguments that we're putting forward would make. And I can see why they would say, no, this is a Remainer parliament. No, this is a Remainer government. You're just uh, trying to go back on what we decided years ago. But... I also have come much more round to this idea that, uh, that, that democracy is not a moment in time. It is an ongoing process. But what we saw from Nigel Farage on Sunday is absolutely, as you described, that he sees that referendum night, which, remember, he conceded. Yeah. He wasn't in a permitted I'd, I'd position to that, yes. But he, he conceded it at the beginning of the night and then his side won. And they now think that that is the only moment in time that matters. And he has gone as well from saying we do an easy trade deal. If we do ask for a free trade deal, we'll get it in no time at all. Yeah, and Ma, he said, he said the problem is the PM never we'll asked ask for, for a, a free, free trade, trade deal. deal. I mean, it's it's he knows that that's not true, right? He knows that the PM went to EU and said, we want a free trade deal. And the EU said, we're not going to negotiate that until we've done this and this and this. You have to do the withdrawal agreement before you negotiate a trade deal. So you've paid your bill. And of course, Britain doesn't want to. But the EU just said, well, you're going to have to, otherwise we're not going to negotiate. So the, the conceit is that Britain went to the EU in a position of power, and it didn't. And never could have, in my opinion. No, because... It but, wasn't. In a, it is not in a position of power. That's but, why it is so powerless. But the, the, also the thing that I found, and I think our conversation has really perhaps outlined, is his success, and indeed Trump's success, if you want to go down that route, is based on, is on simplicity. It's, we want this thing, yep. so do it. Yep. 
And there's no clarity. I mean, what Ma did quite well was to probe him about what the thing is. So during the campaign, Farage was sort of saying about Norway, Norway and yes. Switzerland. Would it be so terrible to be like Norway yeah, and Switzerland? I don't know if Farage knows the complexity of the Swiss deal and the way in which there are completely ongoing disputes because about how the Swiss deal works and all the rest of it. Um, I don't know what he knows, but, but Ma was quite good at, at actually trying to hold him back to what was said. Um, and so one of the... It is simple, and Farage has a very simple and passionate position, right. but it's based but, on... Uh, on uh, it's fake. Uh, and it comes back, you know... Uh, I wrote a column on this last week at theArticle.com and we discussed it a bit on the show. It even comes down to things like the branding, the Brexit party, yep. with a great big arrow pointing to the exit. <laughs> no, but it's not very subtle, yep. but you know what it means. But I, I, I think that's true. And I, I, I mean, we'll come on to that afterwards. And I he think personified that in the interview. He was, he was very, very good, I think, and... What came next was the official Labour Party spokesperson mm. and after that the official Tory spokesperson. Jonathan Ashworth for the Labour, the, right. the Shadow Health Secretary That's and right. Damien Hines, the Education Secretary. And after Farage's clarity and his vision and his kind of moral certainty came people who were quite self-evidently talking nonsense. Well, they, 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 I mean, they were just tying themselves up in knots. John Ashworth, was, he didn't know what he was saying. He said, but we're going to negotiate a customs union and a single market, and we're going to negotiate a way in which Britain has a say in European trade deals. It, it's all completely fantasy. It's what they call unicorn politics. <laughs> and what is that? Customs union and single market and a say in how it all works. There's a name for that. Yes. <laughs> the name is European Union the membership. membership yeah. um, and if you want a customs union and a single market, and if you want a say in, tra in trade deals, then what is your critique of also sitting at the table like a grown-up country and being part of the ongoing discussion? And if I was the EU, I wouldn't let Britain take the rules and behave like a kind of rule taker, but refuse to participate like a grown-up country yeah in making the rules, because every time there's something that anybody's unhappy with, the tabloids or Farage or whatever, this will go straight back to the cliff edge of no deal. We must get out. So, so mm. sorry, just yeah, so to nail the point, after Farage's kind of childish clarity mm. came the major party politicians who were evidently talking rubbish. <laughs> And that's what Farage says, of course, yeah. that the main parties are corrupt, that politics is corrupt, that they're all the same, that we need and to get rid of And it's about democracy. And it's about democracy. And the, the other bit, which is a link to the, the point on democracy that I want to come back to, is how he really flipped it into attack on the BBC. Because yep. we, we kind of brushed past that earlier in the conversation. And he uh, did it multiple times. He's, you know, attacking the BBC, saying the BBC are not interested in democracy. You're just interested in trawling through what I've said in the past. Now, clearly, he didn't want anyone to remember what he'd said in the past. OK, fine. We've all said stupid things in the past. But he, he you know, he didn't want to have to... He was irritated about having to clarify his position on the NHS. He poo-pooed a question on gun control or reducing gun control in the UK. He, 
yeah, uh, there was a few things where he was like, oh, this this is ridiculous. He was basically saying, yeah. he was, you know, saying it was most, almost the most absurd interview he'd ever been part of. And, you know, this is, this is again, straight out of the Trump play- playbook. It's straight out of the idea that the media, the establishment is the enemy. Yep. And he is the one true voice. He is the... He, he's the... Oh, I'm not going to say that. But he, he's the one that will lead the Brexiteers to the promised land. It's the people. It's... and it's, it's the people. No, Never mind that it's at best half the people. Yep. Never mind that if he wants to go on about election results, the, the Liberal Democrats, two weeks before his interview or a week before his interview, had their best ever turnaround in local elections on a Remain platform. This is what populism does. It constructs the people. Yes. It has the leader who speaks with the voice of the people and it constructs enemies of the people. Enemies of the people of the BBC, the parties, the political class, the judges, the betrayers of the people. And not only... Yes, I've forgotten about that Daily Mail front page, traitors with the picture... Was it traitors? Um, I think it was enemies of the people. Enemies of the people with the picture of all Three the... Three judges. I mean, uh, and this this is... When you start to look at it like this, it is classic nationalistic populism. Yep. One, it, it's sort of populism 101, isn't it? It is. I mean, I I think... I thought that Farage did quite well in a way with Ma. Of course he did. I don't know. On his own know, terms, Ma he was absolutely did. trying to raise all this stuff about you think this, you think that, and Farage is saying... Actually, this is about Brexit, and this is about your betrayal of the people. This is about democracy, and that's where we need to get. We need to get to the the heart of the matter, which is that there are anti-democratic movements in this country, but they are not. You know, it's not the elite. It's not Parliament. The anti-democratic movements in this in this country are the populist movements, which want to rip down everything that exists and start again. And Farage was even quite explicit about that. And Ma said, do you want to be prime minister? And he kind of said, oh, well, not particularly. Yes. Which makes you think, oh, he does. He does want to be he, prime minister. He kind of thought about it for a moment. No, not particularly. Not particularly. <laughs> but if the people <laughs> want, want me. me. Yes, 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 yes. And then, and then how does Labour respond? How does Labour respond? Their key argument in this election is Labour is second... And Labour is the only way to beat Farage. And if you don't like Farage, you must vote Labour. So they don't say anything about how good they are. They don't say anything about how good what they say is. They just say, we're your only chance to beat Labour. Well, uh, so, sorry, to beat Farage. I, I kind of think that's just basic politics. The Lib Dems have done that for years. Only the Lib Dems can win here. You know, uh, with the people have done that before. I'm kind of less offended by that. I'm slightly offended by the idea of Labour portraying themselves as the Remain party. Well, I, yeah, that's, why, that's one of the reasons why it's offensive, yeah. is because vote Labour to beat Farage. Well, what is Labour? Is Labour Brexit or is Labour Remain? Well, we, we still don't know. We've been just trying to work out for three weeks on the podcast and we have no idea. Labour's People... still pretending to be both. Yeah, yeah it certainly is. 
And, and Farage, of course, isn't the only populist movement in this country. The, the creation of the people and then the person who speaks for the people in the name of the people. And this is wholly it's different Corbynism. from democracy. Yeah. Democracy is a constitution, a state, a process, a free press, parliament having proper debates about the detail of what's actually and, going to happen. And both Jeremy Corbyn... Uh, I, I don't want to go too down the, the Corbyn bashing route... If you want to listen to our previous episodes uh -huh. on Podbeam and elsewhere, you can hear that. But if, if there's a call for a bit of Corbyn bashing, we can do it next week. We, we, you know, but he has, like in the way Farage did this week, has uh, taken on the media and attacked the media. He did that very sinister video uh, where he said change is coming with quite a slightly sinister uh, smile and, you know... Change to the media, to yeah. the fake news. Let's just get this straight. The, the allegation is that the media is basically fundamentally one thing. Fake. And it's fake. And the media lies on behalf of the, whatever you want to call it, the ruling class, the political the class, the elite, and, and is fundamentally a conspiracy. So normally... Well, I think... The point is that it's part of the conspiracy and facilitates the p conspiracy. Yes. The, the, the media is one thing and it lies in order to protect the interests of the, the elite. And this is a real attack on the, the whole notion of freedom of speech, the whole notion that, that in, you know, in a free society you have freedom to speak, you have freedom to write, you have freedom to open newspapers, there's a plurality of different media outlets. And by the way... This notion that the media is is a kind of machine for lying, it comes from the left. It comes from I mean, Very much so. I, I don't think I would say us because that's not your tradition, but it it's my tradition as someone who comes from the left and as someone who comes from a critical discipline like sociology. The very idea that the media is a state ideological apparatus, Noam Chomsky calls it the manufacturer of consent. These ideas that media is fake news in order to manufacture false consciousness, this comes from the left. And when the left sees the right grasping these ideas and using them, they don't like it then. No. Um, I So obviously my book on fake news and these type of things coming out next week. No, not next week, next month. I'm slightly ahead of myself. Brilliant. But... Uh, so I, I've thought a lot about these kind of topics and I don't I could sit and talk to you for hours about kind of the media's role and fake news's role in all of this. What I, I do want to say is that watching that interview on Sunday, it really struck me as a classic of the genre of a absolutely stereotypical way of displaying this you know, of manipulating post-truth thinking. So we've, we've noticed, he, he said, Farage said, didn't he, only 12% yep. of British companies export to the EU. Now, technically, that is true. So I but, 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 but what he had totally failed to account for is any of the value-added income but, you know, the extra economic activity and extra economic benefits that come from Britain being a member of the EU, which people who are economists, which you and I are not, will, would be able to outline very clearly. But Farage, as they did in the referendum, the £350 million for the NHS, they grasped, he grasped a figure that is technically indisputable, 
but shrouds it in so removes all context, removes all nuance, yeah, and therefore renders it basically almost pointless as a, as a data point. It's a fake figure. It's a figure which takes one number and it pretends that that's a number which explains everything and it doesn't. Correct. It's, as I say, it strips all context and all nuance away. And if the figure was true, well, you know, Farage, get the economists to come and explain it to us. But, of course, the economists won't explain it to us because it's not true. And Farage won't ask them to. Why not? Because he'll say as was said during the referendum, that the economists are part of the conspiracy. And it was said by Michael Gove, it was said awful stuff about economists being like the Nazis who worked for Hitler's government. And Nigel Lawson, I think, said... Was it him that said the economists at the Treasury had sold themselves to, to for their careers or for money? Uh, no, I think he used the word prostituted themselves. So on the one hand, they, they they throw about figures, but on the other hand, they refuse to let someone who understands the figures explain them. Yep. Uh, and I do want to hear more about your book, actually. Uh, well, what we will do is we'll take a, a little, a quick break, and then we're going to come back because there is some breaking news as we're settling down to record the show that we need to discuss, uh, and it provides a rather fantastic example of a lot of the things we're talking about. David, are you ready for some breaking news? Yes. Welcome back to Centre Circling, by the way. But, uh, yes, as we've settled down here, our phone started buzzing because David Boris Johnson is here to save us all. He's going to run for the Tory leadership he's confirmed whilst giving a speech in Manchester. Goodness me. I can tell you're shocked. You didn't see this coming at all, that Boris Johnson would want to be the Prime Minister of the country. Is there an election? There is not an election yet. There is no vacancy yet, although... Uh, I mean, by the time we record the next episode, there could be (laughs) who honestly knows at the moment. But the point is, Boris Johnson also, I think, has typified and played on many of the things we discussed in the last section. Um, You know, he's doubled down on the £350 million for the NHS figure. He, this old Etonian Telegraph columnist, former Foreign Secretary MP, has try to pers- persuade people that the elite, that he is, of course, not a member of, yeah. are trying to stymie Brexit, the thing that he never n- really knew he wanted anyway. You know, there's still Boris Johnson's Remain a column some, sitting somewhere on a hard drive, as we understand it. So Yes. You, you know, just explain that? Right, so, yes, the story is that Boris Johnson in his big announcement column, was going to announce which side of the referendum he was going to be on in 2016. He wrote both columns. He he wrote both arguments and then ultimately later decided which one he was going to submit. And he, But both columns do exist. He he did write the Why I'm Backing David Cameron and Remain column, yep. apparently. Yep. Uh, it would be a very interesting column to read. I blame myself a little bit for this. Hello. <laughs> well... The first time in my life that I didn't vote Labour was when I voted for Boris Johnson to be mayor against Ken Livingstone. OK. Because Ken Livingstone was so awful, so horrendously awful in his well, last attempt. I think, again, we're going to have to pause and explain your relationship with Ken Livingstone. My relationship with Ken Livingstone goes back a very long way. Well, you've only got... I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Yeah, I'm not going to explain. Um, Ken Livingstone 
was embracing more and more kind of anti-Semitic politics. On that election, his last attempt to be mayor of London, he had met with a number of people from the Jewish community, Jewish Labour people, and he had said that, well, we don't need to worry about the Jewish vote because Jews are rich. And he had said that... Um, Jews only complain about anti-Semitism because they uh, want to silence criticism of Israel. And Ken Livingston goes back a long way. And eventually I thought, no, we have to vote against him. And I couldn't kind of go a halfway uh, house. And, and so I voted for the only person who could beat him. So I voted for Boris Johnson. And I'm worried sorry, now that I'll, I've created an even bigger monster than Ken Livingston. OK, but also the thing, as I understand it, with the Livingston formulation, which you na so named, uh, was he called an, a Jewish... Evening Standard journalist said he was behaving like a Nazi, didn't he? He had yeah. a concentration chat. So, Ken Livingston... And then once some people pointed out this was deeply anti-Semitic, flipped it round to criticism of Israel. Yeah, I don't think it was deeply anti-Semitic. I think that he was involved in a stupid little spat late night after a party. It was Chris Smith's yeah. anniversary of him being a minister or something like that. And uh, Livingston was outside and, and uh, Livingston came out. He, he says he wasn't drunk, but, you know, who knows... He got into this ridiculous little spat with the journalist and he accused the journalist of being... The journalist said, look, give me a quote, Ken, give me a quote. And Ken said, oh, I... And the guy said, come on, I'm only doing my job, give me a quote, we can all go home. And he said, you're only doing your job, you're just like a Nazi war criminal. And all of that sort of nonsense, and the guy had it on tape. It was all trivial. But the point was that the next morning, Livingston didn't wake up in his bed with a little hangover and say, oh, no, what have I said? What's on tape? He woke up and he said, oh, look, this is a political opportunity. I'm going to be accused of anti-Semitism. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to say that the reason I'm accused of anti-Semitism is because I'm critical of Israeli human rights abuses. It's a long story. But this is... Uh, a shape of argument that we see again and again and again. Anyone who's ever accused of anti-Semitism says the same thing. I get accused of anti-Semitism as a Jewish or a Zionist conspiracy to silence criticism of Israel. So, so I named it after Ken Livingston. Anyway, this is a, another story. It's another story for another day, but basically Boris Johnson is your fault. Is that what no, we've learned? Boris Johnson is a little bit my monster. OK. And that monster, if we put it so cool, um, it might be... Uh, about could become the prime minister in the not too distant future. So we've heard Esther McVeigh has declared that she will run. That was a couple in this of election that isn't happening. In the election that isn't happening, but will be happening. Uh, Esther McVeigh is going to be in it. We assume Dom Rab will be in it. He's very good looking, isn't he? Is he? Yeah, he's tough, good looking, oh, military, right. British. You think you have the same Dominic Rab? <laughs> the former I, Brexit secretary? Yes, he worries me a little bit because I think he's quite plausible. OK, so we've got worrying Dominic Rab. Uh, we will probably... Ha I don't know if Liam Fox is going to chuck his hat into the ring. Michael Gove could. So who's the sort of Remainer? Is it Amber Rudd? With her three... Her, their tiny majority? So the, the, the problem for the Tories, we've said this before too, that the... The first of the two big parties to split loses the general election. So presumably Boris is coming along and he's saying, I'm your chance not to split. You can unite around me, the ERG and the right wing of the Tories and the people who are tempted by Nigel Farage. You can all unite around me and then we won't have okay. a Corbyn government. Yes, he can say that. But what about, um, and they still exist, the social liberals yep. within... The the 
uh, I'm going to get a lot of abuse from uh, people in the Lib Dems using the phrase social liberals to describe uh-huh. people in the Tories. But the people, the, the Cameroons, let's say, the George yep. Osborne yep. types of Conservative MPs who do, who do still exist. The Anna Salbury's, the Amber Rudd. Well, Anna Salbury's gone. Gone. But Amber Rudd is a very good example. Yep. Uh, I think, you know, I'm sure we could rattle off a few more. So Boris says, I'm the unity candidate. I'm going to unite the Tory party so that we don't lose to Corbyn. And then you're saying, well, he can't unite the party because then the right will... will, Where will they go? Where will the right go then? They'll go to TIG? (laughs) Well, they might join UKIP in the Brexit party. But (laughs) but I I think it's a really important point because Boris Johnson is clearly going to say, I am the post-Brexit candidate, except he is hugely associated with Brexit. He wanted to be, he made it his victory, uh, and it's now his problem. Well, it's not. we're not post-Brexit yet, are we? Oh, the God, Brexit no. deal was Theresa May's deal. Yes. There's been no majority in Parliament for it. We've, yes, and we Johnson, think we're back jo- next week. And presumably, especially if Johnson has anything to do with it, it'll lose again. And Johnson wants to come along and, says, and say, no, no, we're not going to go for May's deal. But we know that May's deal is the only deal in town. And the fantasy, Nigel Farage again had the fantasy that if only we will it, if only we're unified, then we can get a better deal. This actually, I should have mentioned it in the previous section, um, but Boris is as good an example of it as well, I think. Nigel Farage kept saying in the interview, didn't he? It was his last line. We can do it if we believe in ourselves. I've got the quote here. Go on. We can... We can be better than anybody if we just believe in ourselves. That was it. So the economists, with their, you know, their huge models and their thinking and their assumptions and their com- complexity, have said that something like 8 or 9% of the British economy will wither away in the first 10 years after a no deal. And they've said that after you know, very serious and intricate calculations and they've said it might be a bit less if you take these assumptions it might be quite a lot more if you take those assumptions and the nine percent is about twice the 2008 crash over 10 years so it's serious nine percent doesn't sound like that much does it if i took it's a big deal if i took nine percent of the money out of your wallet you wouldn't even notice would you I mean, you take about ninety, have <laughs> about nine p. But go on. <laughs> but if you took nine percent of the British economy over ten years, people would be on the dole. People will be yeah. hungry. The NHS will have less money, and there, you know there will be uh, political and economic crisis. Uh, and I want to bring this. It's an important point, and but I want to bring it back to Boris Johnson, because. He has also engaged in this kind of rural Britannia, bulldog spirit uh, type of politics as well. And I imagine that now he's officially, if you like, thrown his hat into the ring for the contest that is not yet happening. That is how he will behave on the campaign judging. That's a fair assumption. He's going to promise some kind of Brexit, which isn't May's deal. Right. Right. He's going to promise in the end, he's going to say, we're going to threaten no deal. We're going to threaten to shoot ourselves in the foot. And if that doesn't impress the EU, then we'll do no deal. We're going to threaten to shoot ourselves in the foot and the EU will come running. And if they don't, we'll do no deal. That's going to be his unity message. And we've, I've said before, haven't I, that no deal leads straight back to the deal because there'll be a crisis and then yeah. Britain will say to the EU, come negotiate with us, and the EU will say, of course, but sign the deal first. No deal leads to... To back to May's deal, and May's deal leads straight back to the cliff edge. So Johnson promises that. Then what? 
Well, I look, Boris Johnson remains hugely popular within the Conservatives. One assumes he is now confident that the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg and the ERG will back him. And he will be oh, there. That's a fair assumption, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And, I, and he will be their candidate. Is he in the ERG? Probably. I'm not sure what the official numbers are and how they even do membership, but yeah, I'm sure he is an attendee at points. But he obviously now feels confident that he will be the Jacob Rees-Mogg candidate. Rees-Mogg himself is not going to put himself forward, I shouldn't think. Uh, he will, you know, will fall behind Johnson and, you know, they will have the perhaps the organising power of someone like Steve Baker behind them. And these, these are assumptions, but I think they're not unreasonable ones. Um, which puts Don Rabb, of course, in an interesting position. Huh. But I think Boris, we know from polling from Conservative Home and things, is hugely, hugely popular within the grassroots of his party still. It, wav- it wa- wavered a bit, and re-smog mania overtook him a bit, I think. There's been points where it's wavered. But if he starts doing the kind of rubber chicken circuit to try and get the leadership, he's hugely popular amongst the Conservative grassroots. Right. Um, and that's, it's whether he can, the problem for Johnson has always been whether he can convince enough MPs to put him on the ballot in the first place, to get him to the final two. The assumption with Boris has always been if he gets onto the final two, so the, the Tory leadership election works that the MPs whittle down the list of candidates to a final two and the Tory membership then decides out of those two. Right. And the assumption has always been Boris wins if he gets to the final right. two. But the assumption has always been that there are enough sensible Tory MPs to prevent that from happening. That there could be. So the the, the Tory problem at the moment is that... Which given, one? I mean, the bit have got a lot. <laughs> the, the problem I'm thinking about is that they're splitting. And in certainly in the Euro elections, they're splitting. Their vote will split. And Labour, at the moment, polling, in terms of Westminster polling, Labour are going to be the next government. Um, in terms of, I find that quite a leap of faith, but I've also learned that I should absolutely never predict elections again. Uh-huh. Absolutely. but Because but Cor- I did that in 2017. So, like Corbyn's, Corbyn's Labour is a proper threat to the Tories, I think. I, I think that's, that's inescapable. I think so, Corbyn calculates that if there's crisis, the Tories will get blamed for the crisis. Okay. I've never. I'm less convinced of that now. All right. Not, but I think it does depend. Back to the Boris Johnson news about who who replaces Theresa May. Right, but hang on. If if Corbyn is a proper threat to the Tories, Farage might be a proper threat in some I, I shape. I have to say, too. I think Farage at the moment is more of a threat so than Corbyn. So Farage, imagine he has a big win in the Euro elections, which he might. Then Farage goes into the next general election. Um, either capable of splitting the Tory vote and letting in Corbyn, or even capable of mounting a challenge of his own. Probably not. But so so John's so the the problem that the Tories have. Oh, I've got a nightmare scenario for you. How about Boris becomes the leader of the Conservatives, doesn't get a majority, but there's enough Brexit Party MPs, uh, and they form a coalition. Of course, of course. How do you fancy that? Um, so what we're leading to is the fear that the next general election is going to be between two or three populists. Two uh, or three oh, people, uh, uh, Johnson, Farage, Corbyn, 
all of whom reject democratic politics in some in their in their own way, shape, or form. All of whom say, "I'm the voice of the people." None of whom have a policy. All of whom. Yeah. So I I I think that is almost inescapable. That that's what's the election's going to be. And Boris saw Farage on Mar at the weekend, and he said. Anything you, know, you can do, I can do better. Yeah, he said, I can go full Trump too. Do you remember? He's Steve, even got the hair. Do you remember when Steve Bannon was in town? I do. Uh, Johnson had a meeting. I didn't with get him. a cup of tea with him. Uh, finally, he now. didn't come see you. No, surprise. Do you remember me. he had a meeting with Johnson, and then Johnson I'd kind of tried it. it. Imagine that in my he book. He tried it, and he said that horrible thing about what was it about Muslim women looking like letterboxes? Pillar boxes. Do you remember? Pillar yes. boxes. He just tried it. He gave it a go. Like, like Bannon says, yeah. Own it. Say something racist. Own it. It only does you good. And, and, and he did. He did. He said this revolting, very offensive, totally unnecessary, yeah. really horrible, by almost any definition, Islamophobic uh, comment yeah. in the Telegraph. Everyone rightly was... A lot of people, sorry, were quite appalled by it. And he owned it in the same way that... Farage owns some of the things he says and does, apart yeah. from when Andrew Marr asks them about them. Yeah. Um, so strong and stable, tor- strong and stable, ordinary Tory May didn't work, right? So now what we might have, what we might have, is is a fight amongst various kinds of populist politics, one of whom will win. So, and I think this is also why TIG has failed thus far. And we kind of, we, we discussed them a bit last week, so we won't delve too much back into it. But they are seen as, you know, Heidi Allen, Chris Leslie, Chukwu Munna, very bureaucratic, very technocratic, very capable, but not very exciting. I think they've they're seen as the kind of bureaucracy, the way of just tick box politics, centrism doesn't yeah. really mean anything. There's no radical thinking behind it. There's no passion behind it. Yeah. I think that is how they're perceived. I don't necessarily think that is fair, but I think that is how they're they they are perceived. And so you see the total counterpoint in to that in both Farage in his approach with his party. Uh, and also Boris Johnson, who, yeah. you know, can can is the only person, you know, can you imagine, for example, if Theresa May had got stuck on a zip line holding two flags? Huh. No, seriously. She did, she tried to dance whilst on a visit and has been mocked mercilessly yeah. ever since. Yeah. Boris Johnson, now, if we had more time, I'd go into the all the sexism of that, but I won't. What I will say is, you know, Boris for some reason, is not held to the same standards as other people in the way... I don't think Nigel Farage is either. I think he obviously now feels this is his moment to pounce, that he got done in the last time when Michael Gove went in ahead of him. Um, He may may feel he's dodged a bullet because uh, he has let Theresa May deal with the mess and he doesn't have to do that. I think it, this could it could actually work out well for him, but there is no doubt he. I would be shocked if he did anything other than tr- play the kind of populism card, the you know let Boris be Boris yeah. type thing he did in City Hall. Which let let's be fair, you know, you blamed yourself at the beginning of this conversation yeah. for letting in Boris. It worked in London. He will go full Trump. But this, but the the game has changed, and he may go full Trump. 
And talking of games, we are going to move on to sport in the final section of the show just after the break. I'm very excited, David, because I'm going to see my team in the Champions got, League final. You've got your ticket to Madrid. I'm on the way to Madrid. Where are you going, David? I don't, I don't have my ticket to Baku. You're going to Baku <laughs> to see Arsenal versus Chelsea yeah. uh, in the Europa League. What's the Europa? I remember the Europa League. You do? Oh, yeah, that was... Mm, no. <laughs> One person who might not be going to Baku, though, is... Arsenal midfielder Henrik Mkhitaryan yeah. because he is Armenian. He's Armenian. He's not only Armenian, but he is the captain of the he Armenian is, football team. And a very significant domestic figure. He's a well-known Armenian. There's a, a doll, there's a Mkhitaryan doll. It talks. What? Yeah, that you kind of pull the, the the string on the Mkhitaryan doll and it says... What are you talking about? In Armenian. Uh, I haven't got one. We'll get one for next week, maybe, and we'll see. I think he's being serious. Right, so we've got Herrick Mkhitaryan, who might not be allowed... Well, so Arsenal have asked, his club Arsenal have asked UEFA uh, to guarantee his security. So this is the story. The final is in Baku, in Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan. And the Azerbaijanis have a long-term conflict yeah. with Armenia. Armenia. And he has asked, and his club have asked him, to have his safety guaranteed. And the, the Azerbaijanis generally don't allow Armenians right. into the country and they certainly generally don't allow the captain of the Armenian football team into the country. So it's all deeply political and rather messy. Which opens up a whole set of actually rather important principles. Yeah, ne- never mind the fact that it is a, a fo- possibly a footballing disadvantage to Arsenal. Well, I think it's pretty clear that if Mkhitaryan isn't allowed in, then Eden Hazard shouldn't be allowed in either. And because, be because of the well-known Azerbaijan-Belgium conflict. Yeah. Mm. Don't think that's working for you. But what it does do, and we—it's it, often—it's interesting, isn't it? How often sport is a a—I was going to say the playing field. You'll have to forgive me, but uh, <laughs> for for politics, yeah, um, we've seen it with. Uh, often it happens with Israeli sportsmen and women. There was the judoka not so long ago, back in 2017, wasn't yep. it? It had to sing their own national anthem, yep. can, can, can be under their own flag. I mean, look, politics and sport are a kind of big thing for a very long time, mm. but this is a kind of specific thing about, you know, countries holding international tournaments and then deciding that they won't allow this or that person into the country or to compete because they're of the wrong... Uh, nationality yeah. and um, which is completely in my opinion against any principle of sport yeah. of sporting competition yeah. I mean politics in sport goes back a long way I of remember the, the 1956 well I don't remember the 1956 the story, the story of the 1956 water polo final between the Soviet Union and Hungary yeah. while the Soviet tanks were rolling across the streets in in, um, in Hungary and um, we, we saw it with a Olympic, US, Russia, US, Soviet Union, Olympic. Blood in the water that day. There yeah, was. and I think there was blood on the ice as well in the ice hockey, yeah. Soviet Union versus the USA. Yeah. So, like, you're right, and then we've seen it, uh, and this is going to perhaps be a somewhat uncomfortable example, but we've also seen it with uh, Premier League superstar Mo Salah, won the Golden Boot, yeah. but has previously, when he was playing for Basel, uh, refused to shake the hands of uh, of players from Maccabi Tel Aviv, the yeah. Israeli f- uh, football team. There was a story, and I'm kind of loath to give this one too much credence. We don't know. There was uh, 
a story that emerged over some of that he would had said he would leave Liverpool were Liverpool to, to sign an uh, Israeli player. Interestingly, this the player in question was actually an Israeli Arab, which is an interesting dynamic to yes. the whole thing. I don't know if he knew about that or not, or if he understood the, the significance of that. Have you got a problem with Liverpool at the moment? <laughs> Listen, n- the footballing principles aside, <laughs> I think we're, we're seeing a lot of these things. And, you know, if one country could say we're not going to let an Armenian player in, what is to stop... Uh, other, you know, you can pick any country. Yeah. Well, we're both thinking of the, the. There's been a whole number of examples of Israelis. Of being course, left but there are plenty of others. And the teams, Premier League teams, going to uh, Dubai and places like that for some warm weather training and leaving their Israelis behind. Are there any, what are the other big examples of this going on? Can you think of any? I, I think they're probably not as much. You don't often get South Korea or North Korea having to compete in huh. sport in that way. Yeah. Um, but I think, that, I think that the Americans left behind some. Uh, uh, Jewish competitors from the 1936 Olympics. Right. Um, so, but the, these things do happen to a variety of countries, and um, it is always it is always uncomfortable when sport, although there is a history of it, it is always uncomfortable. I think when sport and uh, politics collide in this way. Yeah, I mean, uh, it can't be allowed, can it? I well, I think, and I think we're gonna we're going to see issues of this in the forthcoming World Cup. I think. Right. In Qatar. Um, Who's not going to be allowed into Qatar? I just think there's going to be some very difficult ethical questions that come up. And I think when... You know, I think it's for sporting bodies... It is incumbent on sporting bodies to not award these high-profile events, however much I want to mock the Europa League final. It is a high-profile event. (laughs) And it is incumbent on sporting bodies not to award... Uh, the, these high-profile events to places that cannot guarantee the safety and equality of all those who might compete there. Yep. I think that's a really important sporting principle. So we will we will see how that kind of transpires, and if Henrik Mkhitaryan does make it to uh, to Baku along with his teammates, and and what what else. And like I say, I think it'll be worth keeping on as we get closer to the Qatar World Cup as well. Do you remember the... Um, who was it? Was it uh, Joey Barton piled oh, in on Yossi yes. Benion once? Do you remember that? I do. I do. They had a, they had a friendly teammate debate over Gaza in 2014. Yeah. And then uh, th- I've just got the tweets here, actually. And from This is 2014. And then there was some Labour councillor. They both, obviously both played together for QPR, Yossi Benayin in Israeli. And then some uh, Labour councillor piles in on Joey Barton's side and he said, Yossi, you're an idiot. Looks like Hartson didn't kick you hard enough in the head. Joey, top man. Oops. Oops. And, of course, the guy Hartson kicked, kicked in the head was Al Berkovich, yes. another Israeli. Oops. Yeah, oops. This was one of the early... So, so the, the kind of daily examples of Labour anti-Semitism, this was a kind of early prototype. Yeah, it's interesting that it emerged even back then. Lots of people have been leaving the Labour Party this week. Yeah, we've had former minister Bridget Prentice walk out almost in despair at the party. Uh, but like your example says, it's been going on a while. Every day. I'm kind of... I have this position where I want to prevent I want to make sure that people who oppose Corbyn stick stick kind of with some kind of solidarity that that the people who are in the Labour Party fighting Corbyn 
and the people who have left the Labour Party because they can't bear it anymore retain some kind of solidarity. On the other hand, I just keep thinking, you know, enough is enough. Um, I keep hearing this sort of Labour people saying, well, I'm going to remain and fight, I'm going to stay and fight, with the implication that the people who've left are not part of the fight. And I want to respond to that, I'm going to leave the party and fight, and I'm not going to sit there in the abusive family anymore. And then I well, catch myself... Well, it's interesting, Bridget Prentice, on her departure, this is a slight deviation from, from the sport, but it's important because of the Labour anti-Semitism issue you just mentioned, that... Uh, she, I think, just in her, either in an interview or her departure letter itself, described it as being in an abusive relationship. Did she say that? I, yes. Um, so, and then, you know, then again, I, I pull myself back because there are, you know, fantastic, tough, especially young Jewish men and women and, and, and other people in the Labour Party fighting and doing educationals and, 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 and really arguing and educating. Which brings us to Glenn Sacker, actually. Yes, we're gonna we're, we're slightly running out of time, but we do need to touch on this now. You've mentioned it. Uh, Glenn Sacker is the head of the Jewish Voice of Labour, the kind of Corbyn supporting. Yeah, he, he made this kind of awful, dreadful speech at the Palestine, Palestine Solidarity Campaign rally uh, at the weekend, and and just kind of, I mean, we could go through exactly what he said. He was sort of denouncing Jews as getting into the gutter with EDL rats and things like that. Which is just, nice. Just the, the kind of horrible... Spell. I'm just reading from the Jewish Chronicle here. It says, A far-left activist who delivered an anti-Semitic tirade at a pro-Palestinian demonstration in central London last weekend is to provide training on Jew hate to Labour members at an official party event later this month, the JC can reveal. Um, I know that we don't understand irony, David, <laughs> but my... That seems rather ironic to me. That paragraph has two meanings. But, but to be deadly serious, actually, just quickly, um, the Jewish labour movement was in charge of educating people about anti-Semitic tropes, about... The Jewish labour movement, a long-standing associate body with a proud history in the labour movement. It's the oldest... Um, what's it called? It's not an associate body. Affiliated body. The oldest affiliated organisation... Uh, in the Labour Party, had been running... I mean, my friend Richard Gold, who's just been elected a Labour councillor, has, has been working really, really hard, done, I don't know, 20 or 30 yeah. talks at CLPs. But now um, it's these other guys who are doing that work. So, so Jewish Labour movement has been marginalised, and the guy who talks about Jews getting into the gutter with rats, he's doing the training now. So... Uh, I'm sitting here in silence because almost words fail me, which probably means it's time to wrap up the show. So thank you very much from David Hirsch. Thank you very much from Charlotte Henry. Please do keep in touch with us throughout the week. Join us next week on the Centre Circling podcast. Remember uh, the name, Centre Circling. Uh, yes, we, that's why we always like to drop in a little bit of football as well. But um, I'm at Charlotte Henry on Twitter. And uh, at David Hirsch on Twitter, and you can also find me on Facebook. And please, if you like the podcast, uh, tell your friends about it, show your granny how to download it. Or if you think it's rubbish, just share it with people you don't like, frankly. <laughs> we'll be happy with that. Yeah, we don't mind. Uh, tweet it out, retweet it, and um, become part of our conversation. And we will see you next week. 